Hi everyone, Ollie Neal here. A very happy Christmas to you all. Thanks so much for your support and encouragement this year. It's been greatly valued. I hope you're able to find a few moments of quiet during this busy season to listen to this short Christmas reflection from Jim Crooks. I'm going to read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and verses 76 to 79 before we hear from Jim. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Thank you, Ollie, and a happy Christmas to you all. We've been enduring this pandemic for so long that it's actually quite difficult to remember what normal Christmas shopping feels like. These days, shops are places to get in and out of as quickly as possible. Speed, efficiency and avoidance of physical contact are the metrics we use to measure a successful shopping experience. And it struck me recently how different that is from a few years ago. Christmas shopping in the Marks and Spencer's Food Hall in Belfast or Lisburn used to be an excruciating experience. The whole gamut of human personality types was on display. At one end of the spectrum, I remember two rather jolly women uh, who were completely oblivious to the pandemonium around them. They sought to hold every item that aroused their curiosity. A queue of other shoppers ground their teeth while they patted a large tub of prawn cocktail, giving ecstatic ooze of delight. At the other end of the personality spectrum, This joyless, grim-faced old man and his even more terrifying wife used their trolley like tank commanders during the Battle of Kursk. To borrow apocalyptic language, he rode upon a pale trolley and her followed behind. That chaotic mayhem has been replaced by a much more utilitarian spirit. I think our uh, new approach to Christmas was summed up for me by a photo that appeared in just about every national newspaper last week. It was of a Christmas meal provided for the students of Stenning Grammar School in West Sussex. (laughs) I shouldn't even describe the thing as a meal. A dry bread roll supported one anemic slice of equally dry turkey, and three other items rested on the cardboard plate. A mince pie, a revolting-looking pig in blanket, and a tiny square of goo that purported to be stuffing. When the first complaints about this travesty of a meal came in, uh, the school board issued a rebuttal that was worthy of the uh, North Korean Press Association. Parents were told that the students really enjoyed it, and this was evidenced by empty plates and happy faces. Well, (laughs) it took a Twitter storm to puncture that fiction, prompting a grovelling apology from the school board. I mean, think about what a Christmas meal should be like. There should be succulent turkey and honey-roasted ham and pigs and blankets and roasted potatoes uh, on our heated plates, you know, and deep china dishes full of steaming vegetables will be passed around full of roasted parsnips and mashed potatoes and all sorts of winter vegetables. Traditional stuffing and gravy and cranberry sauce provide the perfect complement. The dystopian prison food served on a cardboard plate to the students of Stenning Grammar School shouldn't even be dignified by the term Christmas meal. That unhappy experience provides me with a metaphor for a much deeper issue. I happen to be reading through the book of Malachi this morning, and the prophet's analysis of the state of God's people 
reminded me of the difference between a true Christmas meal and the unappetizing gruel set before the students of Stenning Grammar. I'm going to read a few verses from Malachi in a minute, but first let me set the scene. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and in many ways it acts as a bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. Malachi lived in roughly the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. It's likely that he ministered in Jerusalem after the temple and the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt after the exile. So we might reasonably expect the people to be in a healthy spiritual state. On the surface, if we had observed life in Jerusalem at that time, we'd be pleased to see that there was no obvious idolatry going on. The temple appeared to be functioning, sacrifices were being made, and the offerings to the Lord uh, were occurring. But in reality, the state of worship was a bit like that anemic slice of turkey on a dry bread roll. The people were half-hearted, selfish, and devoid of joy. One of the key literary features of Malachi is that every statement made by God through his prophet gets immediately contradicted by the people. You get this sense of sullen, truculent apathy. There is no wholehearted generosity or exuberance, just a rather prickly, going-through-the-motions approach to religion. We should maybe pause at that observation for a second. I sometimes huddle with other church leaders to discuss the impact of the COVID pandemic on church life. And it's very common to hear pastors talk quietly about congregations who have become apathetic or even cynical. Now, I'm not scolding here. People just seem tired and much less willing to throw themselves into Christian ministry again. Churches are still functioning, of course, but I sometimes wonder if heaven sees our worship not so much like a wonderful Christmas feast and more like the unappetizing slop offered to the students of Stenning Grammar. In Malachi's day, the people of God kept the best for themselves and offered the scrag ends of their lives to God. They brought diseased animals or injured animals to the temple for sacrifice. Some were close-fisted when it came to donating money into the offering box, and they muttered hard things about God under their breath. In reality, the Persian governor was much more worthy of their respect than God. They had started to live as materialists, and the religious rituals were just a cultural veneer. In one of the most shocking sections of the book, God says that he wishes someone would just close the temple down. I said earlier that the book of Malachi acts a bit like a bridge from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and in that sense it is a book that holds out incredible hope. So let me read you three short sections from the last two chapters of the book. God is speaking, and he says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. Malachi probably wrote his book round about 433 BC. Generation after generation of faithful Israelites read his words, and they wondered when the Lord himself would come to their temple like a refiner's fire. But there was 400 years of silence. And then, one day, an old man called Simeon 
got to see the Lord himself come into the temple. But the Lord was being held in his mother's arms. Simeon held the infant Christ in his arms and felt tiny fingers grasp his old calloused hands. Simeon would never get to see the cross or the resurrection. But the Lord had come to his temple, and that was enough. So old Simeon prayed, Now let thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. It was the Apostle Peter who called you and me a royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now why are we able to do that? Well, because our faith has been refined as by fire, says Peter. Christ coming into this world has made it possible for apathetic, cynical and worldly people to be transformed into wholehearted servants who live distinctively holy lives. Later on in Malachi chapter 3, the Lord accuses his people of robbing him. They were being tight-fisted and selfish. And the Lord urges them to be generous. And he says this, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. How does God transform selfish, tight-fisted people into generous givers? By throwing open the heavens and giving his very best to us. Christ is the man from heaven. He is the Father's gift to us. The incalculable generosity of God to give his very self to us. Luke records a moment when the Lord Jesus watched an incredibly poor widow drop two little copper coins into the temple offering box. They were so flimsy that they were like little metal leaves. And yet she had given all she could. And the Lord recognized in her someone who had his own heart. Hear Paul. But God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. In chapter 4 of his prophecy, Malachi looks forward to that moment when the Lord will enter his own creation. The Lord says, For you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Ollie read us earlier those magnificent words from the Song of Zechariah recorded in Luke chapter 1. That old priest, who had once been so cynical and disillusioned, talks of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Light of the world, you step down into darkness, we sing. Christ came into this world to reveal the truth about reality, to give us understanding. And when we come to understand the gospel, it fills us with joy. I will confess to you that one of my favourite type of video clip is the category dedicated to baby animals. Like a sentimental old fool, I sit and smile at the antics of baby elephants and little foals and baby goats. And Malachi gives us a picture like that. He describes joy as being like the frolicking of well-fed calves kicking their little legs up in the air, jumping just for the sheer joy of it, because they're happy and secure. Now, here's my point. When you put those three sections of Malachi together, you see the transformation brought about by the incarnation of Christ. Apathetic, half-hearted worshippers turn into whole-hearted servants of the Lord. Selfish, tight-fisted people turn into generous, big-hearted people. Miserable creatures living in darkness jump for joy in the warmth and light of the sun. Malachi could only look forward to a future like that, but we can live in it because Christ has come. We have everything we need to be wholehearted, generous and joyful people.
So we may need to take a moment to repent of our apathy, our half-heartedness and selfishness. Or maybe we just need to repent of being miserable old grumps who wallow in self-pity. This Christmas, in your heart, jump up and down like a well-fed calf. And in our worship, let's make sure we prepare a feast that the Lord will enjoy. It would be a terrible thing, would it not, if the only thing we gave to God this Christmas was a dry bread roll and an anemic slice of turkey. Let's resolve to bring him offerings from our heart that will bring him pleasure and remind him that his incalculable generosity in giving us his son has been vindicated because, as a royal priesthood, we are a wholehearted, generous and joyful people. May the Lord bless you and those that you love over this Christmas period.